Matthew 18 and at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, we've been uh, thinking about how Jesus protects and uh, guides his church, his flock, in these sections that we've been looking at, uh, which began uh, with the question of the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which, which provoked this discourse in Jesus to say that greatness is truly found among those who serve, those who humble themselves like a little child. And that, moreover, God is concerned about all his flock, all his people, both young and old, both prominent and not so prominent. And in fact, as we were seeing that it is the less prominent that the church is to be concerned with. We are to have the mind and heart of the great shepherd who sees all of his sheep and who leaves the ninety and nine with other shepherds and goes and seeks out that one vulnerable lost sheep and when he recovers it, he comes back with great joy. And so we have been getting an insight into not only the, the ways in which Jesus uh, governs his church, but the heart of Jesus. And we've been uh, at pains to see that we uh, are to reflect the heart of Jesus when it comes to all of his people, that we're all to bear a shepherd's heart one for another. Uh, we uh, want to take a look this morning again at that whole dynamic of how that we deal with sin in the church. We saw earlier that we were to guard against sin in our own lives by taking drastic measures that if it's something that is the most valuable thing to us, if it's leading us away from Christ, that we deal with it. Just as a person might pluck out their eye or cut off their hand. It's a very painful process. Jesus is acknowledging that. But he says that the consequences of that are more uh, serious if left unattended. That heaven and hell are at stake. Eternal judgment is before us. 
And so uh, we are not to sin ourselves, neither are we to cause others to sin, to stumble them, to scandalize them, to lead them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in all these ways, are, is shepherding his people through his word. He's laying down the law for how we live as brothers and sisters, how we're to treat one another, how we're to see one another. Uh, we are to see one another through the eyes of he who is love itself. He who, who is defined in the Bible, God is love. And so it's through that lens that we deal with one another that we care for one another. And it's in that context that we think about church discipline. And that's what he is going on to talk about here in Matthew 18. It's one of the most foundational passages in all the Bible when thinking about how we deal with sin in the church. And so in these verses we're told how we, we go about restoring someone who has fallen into sinful acts or sinful lifestyle. What do we do? Do we leave them in that situation? Or do we confront them? It also speaks to us that we are ready to be confronted, as uh, we were trying to see last week, that we live in such a way as we're open to one another, to say, I'm ready to be taken up by brothers and sisters in the church if they see something in me that's leading me away, that's endangering my soul. And so this is how we are to see this passage on uh, a church discipline. The, the, the word discipline kind of has legalistic, harsh overtones, don't they? But that's not the way, uh, hopefully, we've been seeing it over these last few weeks. The Bible has a different perspective. It has an eternal perspective. Because this discipline that he's talking about here is a battle for the soul. Nothing less is at stake than the soul. And so when you see it, when you start there, as Jesus said earlier, what does it profit a man if he should gain the world, have everything he wants, satisfy every desire of the flesh, and lose his soul? So that's, that's the starting point when we begin to talk about discipline. So that everything else that comes afterwards, we can say, I get it. I understand. You don't have to speak to me twice about this question of discipline. If it's my eternal soul that is at stake, you don't have to beat me over the head with a club to get it. And, and so Jesus frames his relationship with his people and their relationship with one another on the value of their soul. Uh, it just struck me in the, the, the last verse we sang, the word that comes from your mouth is better unto me than many thousands and great sums of gold and silver. That's something, isn't it? The words that you tell me, Lord, are of more value. Why? Because he knows he has a soul that lives forever. And that gold and silver will not uh, do anything for him. When he comes to the day in which he dies. When he comes to the day of judgment. Gold and 
silver will have no bearing upon that. But he says, it's your word that is most valuable to me. Valuable to me. I hope you treasure the word of God in that way. And so Jesus gives his church here a, 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 a kind of a process in which we work through in how we love one another and care for one another uh, responsibly. And so let's look at what he says here. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, these are not church leaders. These are just two people in the church, brothers and sisters in the Lord. One has done something against the other. It's not confined to that, of course. Uh, Jesus is talking here about a particular sin that someone might commit against you. But it's broadly speaking, if you see a brother sinning, if you see someone, a brother or sister, that's going astray in a way that is inconsistent with the word of God, then you are to go to them and deal with them. It's very simple. It's a very private, one-on-one situation. A situation that can be settled without involving others. Jesus, again, is concerned with both parties. He, he knows that people are frail, people are fragile. The offended party and the party that has been, been offended. They're both tender, they're both vulnerable, they're both victims of sin in their lives. And so Jesus wants to contain that as much as possible. You go to that person. Don't first go and spread it around. Don't take it to a wider body. Don't put it on Facebook or Twitter or just, uh, uh, or, or uh, sometimes as we are want to, to put it out as a prayer request uh, to all the prayer group. Uh, and really what we want to do is uh, kind of just spread it around and Tell everyone that we're the offended party. He says, no, none of that. But go to the person themselves who has offended you and deal with it. That's where, that's where church discipline, that we mean, as, as, you are, as you are disciplined physically, you get your exercise, you grow. This is where church discipline really begins. And hopefully, in many cases, ends. Rather than spreading it around, rather than rumors getting around, rather than the reputation of either party being harmed or the cause of Christ being brought into disrepute, go to your brother and try to work it out with him. Love him enough to not talk to everyone about it, to spread it around. This is... This is why Proverbs says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the starting point for all of God's people and all that we do. Love to our, not only fellow believer in the church, but love to our enemy. If we're told to love our enemies, how much more those within the body of the church, within the body of the congregation for whom Jesus died. And so, 
this is the, our, our, our modus operandi, as it were. We, we, we start from a place of love. We start from reflecting the heart of Jesus. For God so loved. So your immediate response is, how then do I love this person? Not win the argument with that person. Not show everybody that I'm right and he, he or she is wrong. How do I love this person? That's the point here. So to love the person enough to guard their reputation. If it's something, it could be a misunderstanding. It could be something that could be solved quite easily. If you go to that person, but if you take it to someone else, the rot begins to spread before you're able to even deal with it. And that's been the case in so many situations, hasn't it? Down through the years where it's been simply a, a misunderstanding about something or something was read into something the wrong way. But rather than the two parties engaging, one took it to somebody else, took it to this group of people. or that, And then the rumor spread, the damage was done. So Jesus is saying, operate out of a place of love. Love the person enough to not want them to continue on in that sin. That's one of the ways in which we know we have been saved because we are we want to repent of things that we've done, but we also want to see that in others as well. We don't want to see them continue on in that same lifestyle, making those same choices. So we love that person enough to do that. We do it privately. This doesn't involve bringing it in any leaders or organization or any other person. This first step is just between you and that person. Proverbs 25 says, Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another secret. These are difficult things, friends. And our, our, our task this morning is not simply to listen and leave, but to say, am I ready to do that? Am I ready to love biblically? To love as Jesus defines, not how I feel I want to. Or what are the world's best management techniques of working through this? But am I ready to love sacrificially? And love the way Jesus has commanded me to? That's a battle. And so we have to decide this morning, we have to decide today, if I were faced with this situation, or what did I do in a situation I was faced with, maybe in the past? How did I handle it? What lessons can I learn from that? And how does it equal what Jesus is saying here? You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is the goal, isn't it? This is the ultimate desire. And it's so easy for us to fall into that trap of wanting vengeance on that person. They hurt me deeply. How dare they say that? How dare they do that? And you want instinctively sometimes to lash out and express that hurt against them. What did Jesus do? When he was reviled, he 
he did not revile again. When he was attacked, he did not attack back, but committed himself to the one who judges justly. And Jesus will go into that in the, 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 the next section of the, the man who was forgiven little and the man who was forgiven much. You have gained your brother. And Jesus shows us the, the, uh, the joy of that back in the last uh, parable there. Verse 13. He finds it, and truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. You've gained your brother. This is, this is our ultimate desire. Again, we must be open to one another in that way. Just as you would go to a doctor. You go to a doctor and you're feeling aches and pains or something wrong with you and you know it. And the doctor says, well, I've, we've examined you, we've done these tests, this is what we believe it is. You don't start insulting the doctor. Say, where did you get your degree anyway? Out of a Cracker Jack box? Or where, where did you learn? I, I, you must be crazy. How dare you say those things to me? You, you know who I am. You, you wouldn't dream of going down that road, would you? You would humbly say, okay, this, if this is the way it is. Because you know that, you know what's at stake. Your life might be at stake here. And so because you have never studied medicine in a day, day in your life, you submit to the one who has had maybe years of experiences, of, of, of experiences in this way, who has... Uh, has studied these things, looked into these things quite deeply, and so on. But oftentimes, when it comes to the things of the church, which matter even more, I mean, we would recoil at the very thought of saying to a noted physician, who do you think you are? Or you know nothing. Or how dare you say that? We would say, are you crazy? But we have no trouble if someone identifies something in our lives that is biblically uh, wrong to say to them, who do you think you are? Judge not that you be not judged. And they shut you down and they just, you walk, you try to shut the, the conversation down that way and and but yet something more is at stake than your body. More important than cancer, more important than some disease that might take your life in three weeks. We're talking about your soul here. We're talking about the Son of God who made the heavens and the earth, who hung on a cross, who is the way, the truth, and the life, all of these things. So he comes to us, and he says, your soul is more important than your body. Your soul is more important than, than wealth and riches and pleasure. And so we, what we do then say, if that is the case, then I humbly submit my heart and soul unto the word of God and to my brother's admonition. They care for me. They're coming to me in love. Well, that always doesn't work, does it? So we see in part two, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Hence the passage we read in Deuteronomy. So that if this, if, if, step one fails, we're to bring two or three others with us to say, look, I, I've talked to my brother, here's the situation that they're in, it's against God's word, 
he re- and you, the, the other witnesses that come along, the other brothers or sisters that come along in the situation, they're able to hear themselves from the lips of that person, whether they're defiant or maybe they can ex- uh, have it explained to them a little more clearly and give that reinforcement to say, yes, we believe that you're going down the wrong way. We agree together here. But if you don't cease and desist this lifestyle, these actions that you're going through, then your soul will perish. And you're showing yourself to be an unbeliever. But again, it's trying to contain the matter as much as possible. Starting from one-on-one, there's been no movement until you bring in others. Again, what's going on here? The love of Christ. The love of Christ. The body working together. Jesus loving his body. Not ganging up. Again, this is how the devil wants us to interpret these things. Oh, they're ganging up on me. What? You know, wasn't good enough that you hammered me? You got to bring other people in now? That's how the devil wants us to see things. Again, we've got to be ready. You've got to be ready for how the devil will try to get into the mix. How he will stir up pride within us to save face or to justify our sin. And so we're ready for him. We're cultivating a humble heart before God each and every day. Lord, humble me. Help me. Help me to see the pride within me. Help me to, to understand, Lord, that these aren't just other people in that I hang out with in a building every Sunday. These are people in whom is the Spirit of God who love me and care for me and have a responsibility for me. So you bring others into the mix to encourage, to find out the facts, to, if need be, to bear witness to the truthfulness of of what's being said or what's being done. And again, even there, it doesn't sometimes work out. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So again, the, 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 the situation is widening. And this may not, again, be uh, uh, immediately uh, requiring exposing the person to the, the judgment of every single person in the congregation. It often starts with the eldership of the church, where the situation is brought before the elders, and the elders are able to bring their thinking, uh, bring their wisdom to bear upon the situation. That's one of the reasons we have elders, is to look into these questions, to be biblically astute to say, and to be able to apply wisely what the Bible says in a given situation. But even if that is not something that the person responds to, then the, the, the wider body of the church is brought to bear upon that individual. Again, they're still being seen as a believer, a brother or sister in Christ. But they're not responding to what's being said, whether it's the individual, whether it's the one, two, or three, whether it's the elders. But now, because they're still not responding, the wider body of the church is involved. 
again, these are very difficult things that the church is called upon to do. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunker, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 2 about the punishment inflicted on him by the majority, by the body of the church, as that person is now uh, brought under the censure of not only the elders, but the wider body of the church. Again, that calls for great wisdom on the part of all in the church. How do we deal with a, a person who calls himself a Christian but is not walking in obedience to the commands of Holy Scripture? Again, it takes wisdom. It takes great love. As Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to a spirit of gentleness. I'm sorry, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So that calling that we have as a congregation is to be exercised with great wisdom, with great humility. As Paul goes on to say, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You who are spiritual, you who are coming at it, in other words, from the right perspective. You're seeing yourself as a sinner. You say, oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. Or I am weak in other places where, you know, I could fall into grave sin. And I'm to see this brother as Christ sees them through the lens of love. If God had not loved me the way he did in Christ, I would be completely lost. So what are you doing? You're looking at yourself. You're examining yourself first before you respond to your brother. You're taking the, the speck out of your, uh, the beam out of your eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. You're developing a spiritual attitude toward church discipline and helping another work through problems. Again, ask yourself, how would I deal with someone or a situation in the church if if I heard of this, that, or the other, would I have the spiritual wherewithal to love that person through the difficulty? And so Paul, in that passage where he talks about the punishment inflicted by the majority, he's, he's concerned that too much punishment will be inflicted upon the wrongdoer. And he says, lest Satan get a foothold be careful about how far you go. And so there's a lot of wisdom that comes into that, a lot of wisdom that is needed, a lot of tenderness and thought and prayer as we work through that together. He says, ultimately, that if that itself is not successful, if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church if he refuses to listen even to the church, that word even, even the church, because it has, has, has placed the, the prerogative of judgment, and he, he's, he's seeing the church as something special, 
even the church. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's language for simply saying, regard that person no longer as a believer, no longer as a Christian. For all intents and purposes, that person has denied the faith. They have, they, through their lifestyle, they're no longer living according to what would be acceptable for a biblical definition of a Christian. And we must regard that person in that way. And what does that look like? Well, from a, a, a church perspective, that person would not be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper, for example. That would be one of the more obvious ones. Would they still be allowed to come to church and sit? Of course. They still need to hear the word. They still need to be admonished. And the hope is that through this process, the person will be convicted as they see uh, people partaking of something that they themselves used to do. And was uh, th- there was something special about that for them at one time. And they may be, they feel, I want that again. And I, they may feel broken or humbled. But at the same time, they're not to be regarded as a Christian or a believer. And Paul, uh, Jesus uses these words, a Gentile or a tax collector, to summarize those who are lost, those who are living in outright sin, those who are rebellious. Now, there's lots that we could say uh, about this passage. The time does not permit, but Jesus finally ends on this promise. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that when you deal with one another according to the dictates of my word, what you bind on earth, what you declare on earth, will be echoed in heaven. Because we're not going around giving our own judgments on things. I think, or this is my impression, or but this is what the Word says. This is what the Bible says. And because the Bible comes from God, it's God's gift to us down from heaven by the Holy Spirit. Then when we deal with one another according to what the Word of God says, not only in terms of the letter, but also in terms of the Spirit, there is agreement in heaven. This is the idea of where two or three are gathered. Oftentimes we talk about that in terms of two or three Christians getting together to pray. Well, it's more than that. And in the context, it's speaking about the authority that the church has as they reflect the judgments of heaven. So that if someone says, yes, I am living in sin, I am unrepentant, and I will not listen to what you say, who are you to tell me, and so on and so forth. We as a church can say with authority that that person is not forgiven and that they are not a believer. And Jesus is saying that sentiment, that word is echoed in heaven itself. Really getting the sense of authority to what the church is saying. 
how, how the, the, the gravity of that, the gravity of the judgment that the church is, is giving in that moment. For the church to be able to say, we have the agreement of heaven on this matter, friend, that your life is not consistent with the gospel. So there's agreement between heaven and earth. But so too if a person uh, turns from their sin, they say, yes, I, I, I've come to see now what you've been saying. And I, I, I want to turn from that. And I, I need the help of the church. And I need the help of God's spirit to, to help me. And, and uh, I know I've done wrong. And I need to work through this. The church is able then to say with the same authority, brother, you're able to encourage them. Say, we see signs of God's work in your heart and life. We see signs of life, this brokenness. There's a, a godly sorrow that is working repentance in you. And they're able to rejoice. Not only to declare their judgment, but to say, as Jesus said in the parable earlier, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Jesus is saying, where, where, where these believers are gathered in my name, according to my word, I am there, as if I were standing with them, passing my own judgment in agreement with the church, in agreement with these believers who are warning and admonishing, or who are welcoming and saying, my son who was dead is now alive. This brother who has gone astray is now brought, brought back into the fold. Let's rejoice in that. Jesus rejoices along with us. So, friends, these are the steps that Jesus gives us to follow. Please, again, I encourage you to prayerfully think through this, to say, if I were on the receiving end of this, if I were in a, a, a position of, of sin and, and fault, how would I respond? How would I look at the people around me? How would I look at my minister and my elders? Would I have the grace? Would I have the humility? And if I say no, then I've got a lot of work to do. I've got to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've got a proud heart. And I know if it were to happen tomorrow, I'd be as defiant, I'd be as self-justifying. I'd be, Lord, I, I need you to help me by your spirit right now to humble my heart. Help me to see, Lord, these matters through the lens of your word, through the lens of your heart. Help me to see these people not as my judges, but as my brothers and sisters, those who love me. Just as we also must be ready that if a brother or sister is caught in a transgression, that we would love them enough, not going to them out of a sense of superiority, but out of a sense of being spiritually minded, humbly minded, to go and say, friend, but for the grace of God, I would be right where you are. I'm a sinner just like you. Let's work through this together. Let's, let's walk through this together. Being ready to love as Jesus loved us. Let's pray.